Now, a potential breakthrough in the race for a vaccine against COVID-19 came yesterday in the form of an announcement made by President Putin himself. Russia has developed a vaccine that he says works quite effectively and forms strong immunity. They're calling it Sputnik V. In fact, he has so much confidence in the vaccine that he's given it to his own daughter. Russia is now in talks with the World Health Organization to get approval for the vaccine. Well, David Nabarro is the WHO Director General's Special Envoy on COVID-19 and he joins me now and thank you very much for joining us this morning you, David. Um, yeah. Can I ask you first your reaction to this announcement from Russia yesterday that they believe they have developed a vaccine that works quite effectively? Oh, it's such good news. Actually there are uh, more than a hundred potential vaccines being developed around the world that we know of and I'm sure there are many more because a vaccine is an attenuated or modified version of the virus that's then injected into an individual that then helps that individual to develop defenses against the virus. And so there will be some a lot of candidates. What happens when you've got uh, something that you hope will be useful as a vaccine is that you are expected to go through a number of trials where you test the vaccine on individual volunteers and then you also test it on larger populations. There are three phases to this trial, these trials, and we heard from the announcement yesterday that Russia is taking its candidate vaccine into the third phase of trials. Uh, we've got a few other vaccines at the same point, and we look forward very much to seeing the results of the third phase, and then you can go into what's called the pre-qualification process, which is to move towards getting a vaccine identified and then approved by countries for giving to their people. Because I think the announcement by Russia yesterday was greeted with some surprise, certainly in some quarters, some suspicion, I think, as well, in some quarters, um, that something could have been developed so quickly, and, and questions being raised about whether Russia may have been trying to get there first as opposed to getting their best. Um, would you have any of those concerns? Well, I, I'm really pleased that there is so much engagement by scientists all over the world on this vital uh, issue. And we, we've always been uh, having a very good relationship with the Institute in Russia that has developed this candidate vaccine. Uh, they've been involved in other vaccines, including yellow fever from Russia in the past. And so we look forward to, to the dialogue and to understanding what the results have been from the vaccine. All good as far as we're concerned. We have a process for dealing with this and we'll go into that process in the coming weeks and months. So what is the timeline for that then, do you think, if, if this uh, can be proven to be an effective vaccine, how quickly do you think it could be delivered? Well, I, I'm really um, nervous about giving actual uh, uh, predictions on this because so much depends on exactly what tests were done for the different phases of the trials, exactly what the results were in terms of uh, efficacy and safety. Uh, and then there's the issue of uh, making certain that it can be um, scaled up for manufacturing and administration. So it will be some months, Sarah. It's not something that can be done just within a, a day or two. It, it does take a period because every care has to be made to ensure that a vaccine is shown to be 
effective, i.e. that it works, and at the same time, safe. Mm. All right, can I ask you then, um, David, about localised lockdowns? Um, I know they're happening uh, around the world now at this stage in relation to COVID-19, um, and you may or may not be aware that we, we've implemented a localised lockdown in three counties here in Ireland after there was a resurgence of the virus uh, in, in meat plants in those three counties specifically. Um, now, there were many businesses in those counties. It's, it's a large enough area um, that were nowhere near the meat plants, that were nowhere near the outbreaks. They weren't in urban areas and they were also told to shut their businesses. And a lot of upset coming from those businesses that, that they had just got back up and running um, and then were told to, to shut down again. People questioning, is it not possible to do a, a more targeted type of micro lockdown um, if we're going to try and live alongside this disease rather than shutting down large areas of the country? Is that something that you think we need to look at in, in, the, in the future, more micro targeted lockdowns? Well, Sarah, you're so right in the way in which you presented that in your question. Um, we are going to have to learn to live with the constant threat of this virus. And we're at our at the early stage of learning, really, we are just getting used to the process of being able to deal with small resurgent outbreaks quickly. And one of the big questions is uh, how much of an area should you focus on when you're trying to restrict movement uh, and actually suppress an outbreak? Do you go broad and therefore try to make certain that you actually catch everyone? Or do you go very focused to get minimum possible disturbance? Some some listeners will have heard about some major problems in New South Wales in Australia, where what was initially thought to be quite a localised uh, outbreak has surged and become a really major issue. And I think that's what everybody worries about at this stage, is are we doing enough to make sure it doesn't suddenly grow big and then lead to terrible problems with many, many weeks of difficulty to get it under control. And so the authorities will go for a wider area at the beginning. But over time, I think we will get more and more sophisticated and we'll be be able to get narrower. To those businesses that are feeling upset, totally understood. Uh, I think the issue for all of us involved in the public health uh, challenge is trying to make certain that the pain is minimal and short rather than much, much greater and longer because we didn't act decisively at the beginning. Um, and in relation to those lockdowns also, there were, um, as I mentioned, a couple of meat plants were involved um, or were seen to be the, the focus of the outbreaks. Um, one of the meat plants didn't close immediately. They stayed open and the government uh, said uh, that it was up to the businesses themselves to close voluntarily. Do you think in instances where a business such as a meat plant or another business has, has been identified um, as having an outbreak of COVID-19 that it should shut immediately? So the the most important thing here is that that to stress to everybody, we will have resurgent outbreaks of COVID in particular kinds of factories where people are close together, where the temperature is cold, uh, and there are other features as well that may be facilitating transmission. The key thing is that the meat plants have got to be ready and they've got to be able to deal with clusters as soon as they find them. Closing the plant may be necessary if uh, it's not at all uh, certain that the outbreak is well understood. And you you see, if you've got an outbreak, but you can also 
uh, say with certainty where people got infected from and so on, then that means you're getting it under control. So I can't give a statement, a general statement on this, but I would, I do want to say that we know that residential care for older people, prisons and other detention facilities, uh, meat and uh, other uh, cold plants where food is being produced and similar are places where uh, this virus is most likely to emerge. And it's great that we've got cooperation between government and the employers to try to get this under control. By and large, I want to try to move to a situation all over the world where we do this together voluntarily rather than having to do it all through instruction. Last point is to just say to everybody, we will learn how to deal with this virus with more sophistication in the coming weeks and months. At the beginning, it will feel a little bit clumsy, but we will get it right. And I'm really impressed with the speed with which authorities are focusing on this. Um, you mentioned refrigerated surfaces and cold surfaces. Uh, yeah. We were speaking on the show yesterday about New Zealand and the fact that they have um, had uh, community transmission cases for the first time in 102 days. Um, and they're yeah. trying to, to trace the source of those. Um, there's now a suggestion they're investigating whether it's possible the virus came into the country on a freight liner. Um, yeah. And I believe they're, they're testing the surfaces there. Uh, is that something that, that can happen in your view? And what does that mean even for grocery shopping, you know, in terms of your cold yeah. goods? that you might be putting into your into your own fridge or your freezer? I have a, a list in my head of what are the particular activities that are most likely to transmit this virus. And I still, in my list, have right at the top, coughing when you've got the virus, close to somebody else, spreading that virus through the droplets from your cough, directly getting into their air intake and then being sucked into their body. I'm absolutely certain, uh, uh, Sarah, that this is the primary mode of transmission. Now, is it possible that in addition, there can be virus surviving in cold food? I'm just not sure because what all the evidence I've seen so far suggests that the virus does die quite early on on surfaces, within a matter of hours. And so I've seen these reports that people are thinking about long-term virus survival in chilled food. But just at the moment, I'm not anticipating that this is a major source of spread. I'm sticking with the droplets as being the primary source. So I'm still buying cold food and uh, not treating it as though it might be infected. All right. Can I ask you then about schools, David, because our Thornish Thaly of Ragger said yesterday it's inevitable that schools are going to get clusters when they reopen in in a few weeks. Um, Do you agree, firstly, that we can be certain of that fact? And then how do we deal with it when that happens? Thank you. Uh, 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 Schools is is tough. Uh, And that's simply because we know that schools have to reopen. This is an essential part of life. It's it's a bit like saying there are there are certain occupations that are essential uh, and we can't go on postponing the reopening of schools. So then what we've got to do is to say, uh, what have we got to be ready for? Well, yes, you're right. There will be some clusters of COVID in and around schools and uh, universities as they reopen. So what do we do about it? Answer, we've got to do everything possible to try to make sure these clusters are small, Uh, and uh, actually that we prevent them from growing. And that's by the physical distancing. Masking, uh, I do think, has a role. Hygiene is so important. 
and asking kids and, and, and teachers and parents to stay well away from the school if they're feeling unwell. Then we've got to have good protocols for dealing with the outbreaks when they occur. We've got to have clarity on what are the circumstances under which a school will close again if there is an outbreak in an area and uh, plenty of warning for parents and others because it's very inconvenient when schools close. And thirdly, we've got to support the parents who've got perhaps specific challenges at home. They might be shielding because of a, uh, an older person or a, a, a disabled person in the home who needs special care. And uh, we need to be really understanding about that. Each situation has to be looked at uh, in its own right. And, and I think all of us need to be noting that the reopening of schools will be difficult. We've got to work together on it. There's no choice. We've got to find a way to do it. But we have to pick our way through it with, with care and respect and all the time putting the interests of pupils and teachers right at the centre. And I suppose just, just on that last point, um, on the question of, of closing schools if a cluster yeah. arises, I mean, yeah. is, is that the, the right thing to do or is it a question of just letting the class involved go home or how do you know how far the virus is spread? Well, what, what is the prudent action if there's an outbreak? It's, back, it's like the point you said to me at the, at the, earlier in the interview about the three counties and some people in the counties that have been asked to reduce movement feeling frustrated because they say, why is the circle being drawn so broad? Why is it including our businesses? And, and I think that at the beginning, uh, authorities uh, will err on the side of caution. They'll probably close whole schools when there are cases. And the reason for that is if you see one or two cases, it's the tip of the iceberg. You know that that's actually telling you transmission that happened a few days ago and you'll get more cases. So I suspect at the start, when there has to be a reclosure, that it will be the whole school. But again, over time, I think we will become more sophisticated and we will be able to do uh, more, more carefully uh, what I'm going to say, titrated closure uh, by having good data. So let's see how it goes. Let's work together. And, and most importantly, as I said last in answer to your last question, really put the interests of pupils and teachers first and, and recognise that it's going to be a little bit of learning while doing, at least at the beginning. Um, just a slightly unusual one, unusual one, David, you may not have the answer yeah. for me, but it came up on the show yesterday. We were speaking to um, a parent representative and, and columnist and she was saying that she, she has heard from a lot of parents who have heard from a lot of schools that they will be requiring students to wash their uniforms every day or to wear different clothes every day so as not to have the same clothes in, in terms of um, hygiene, I suppose, and the virus. Is that yeah. something that the WHO has looked at or what would be the recommendation on, on what children wear every day? Can they wear the same uniform two days in a row, for example? Well, thank you for telling me that I might not know the answer to it <laughs> because although I've checked uh, before doing this interview, I checked the guidance on schools. I did not see a suggestion about washing uh, uniform every day. I have heard from many health workers who I know personally that they've been really careful about washing uh, their clothes every day. They just put them straight into the machine uh, if they've got a machine or they put them straight into the into the bucket and wash every day and dry them out. And I think uh, this is good uh, a good precaution, uh, but I'm not sure that I would be saying this is absolutely essential uh, myself. But I want to say to every person, uh, every school head teacher, every parent, you know, do what you feel most comfortable about. It, it's really important that we don't try to impose any particular approach on you. 
because we've all got to be as comfortable as, as we can. Children are so precious. Mm. We want to do everything right for them. Uh, and also other people in the home are similarly precious. So let's see how that one goes. And, and Sarah, if I hear anything on that, I'll let you know. Well, please do. That would be great. And yeah. just finally, um, David, if you don't mind, I, we heard advice yesterday from the WHO about delaying non-essential dental work. Um, I wonder, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because at the moment, dentists are operating here as normal. Well, as close yes. to normal as possible. I, I read that and I, I, I read also the, the interview with the a person from the WHO department that deals with dental health. Uh, let's start by saying that one of the things that we all want to try to avoid is COVID leading to closing down essential services. So COVID meaning that it's hard for people who've got cancer to get their screening checks done or it's hard for people who've got diseases like diabetes to get controls done. And so keeping the health service going for, for all the sort of basic things, women's health, children's health, uh, uh, non-communicable diseases, absolutely essential. But there's something about dentistry that we need to really pay attention to. You're working inside the mouth and, and anybody who has been to the dentist recently, you know that there's a lot of of um, suction going on, there's quite a lot of blowing going on to clean the, the tooth, especially if a filling's being done. And it's these activities that can lead to what we call aerosolization, which is tiny little um, particles coming out. And if somebody happens to have the COVID, then there's a chance that the dentist uh, is at greater risk. And we have also have data that suggests that there have been both surgeons who look after the throat and the nose and the ear, as well as dental uh, surgeons and technicians who've been infected. So this advice from WHO makes very good sense. Uh, but at the same time, some dentists will say, look, we've got used to dealing with these threats. We've got very good techniques and we're prepared to keep going. So this was guidance from WHO saying, be careful about it. Obviously saying, if you feel that you've got a way of dealing with the threats, then continue your practice, but also saying that if you're not sure, you might want to put off the uh, non-urgent stuff. It's just, I'm personally saying, we do need to try to keep basic services, all services going as much as possible because we have to be able to live with this virus. Mm. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's David Nabarro, the WHO Director General's Special Envoy on COVID-19. Thank you, David. Today with Sarah McInerney on RTE Radio 1.